everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vineyard. Glad you came. Did you grab a Bible on your way in? If you didn't, you can uh, head to the back and grab one from those carts. Would love for you to read with me today. We'll start in Jeremiah chapter 29. And if you were here last week, you're thinking, aren't we studying Daniel? Well, Daniel lived during the Babylonian exile, and he wasn't the only person who writes uh, books of scripture during this time. So in 597, King Nebuchadnezzar comes and conquers the what was known as Judea, the southern kingdom, and takes 10,000 of their best and brightest to his city with the goal of making them into good Babylonian citizens with a Babylonian worldview that, so that they think Babylonian, so that their hearts desire the things of Babylon, and so that when he sends those, like many of the leaders back, the ones that he doesn't want to keep close to him in his inner circle, that it would be the, the now assimilated Jewish people, uh, people of Israel with the Babylonian worldview to go back and convert the people who were left behind. So if you remember last week, we talked a little bit about what it means to live life in exile. One of the main ideas of this series is that as people who follow Jesus, who want to live the way of Jesus, who love like Jesus, we are actually in the minority, inside of a dominant culture that has different values and different beliefs, a different worldview altogether. So, There are basically three ways to exist inside of a dominant culture with these different ideas and values. The first way would be here on the left to just separate. So you maintain your values and beliefs by withdrawing from the culture. So you have your Christian dentist and you have your Christian uh, barber and you, you pretty much only make Christian friends and you only, you know, engage with other Christians. Uh, and, and that's a way to maintain your values. But of course, this is not uh, honoring to Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations. And what you do in the separation is you stop loving your neighbors. You stop serving your cities. So the other option on the far, I don't know if that's your left. Yeah, your left, your right, my left, the stage left, uh, is to just become syncretism or to engage in syncretism. The word there is sync, so you just sync up and you basically absorb the values of the dominant culture. You might say, well, I'm a Christian, but it doesn't actually change the way you live or think. Uh, and that's not honoring to the way of Jesus either. So we have the center space that Daniel shows us that we are trying to live out in our world today, and that is to be faithful to Jesus while we engage with the culture, or I like the word better, even to serve our, like our neighbors, the culture, 
our cities, serve our cities while maintaining boundaries around our values and beliefs. Now, some of you are thinking, well, what do you mean we're people who follow Jesus living in exile? Don't you know that 70% of people living in our country today identify as Christians? We're not living in exile. How could that be? Now, I went to a dark place this week. I started looking at statistics. <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but here's, here's basically what I gathered from Pew Research, Barna, other cultural kind of statistical studies, is that while 70% of people identify as Christian, less than half of those people attend church in a meaningful way. And a meaningful connection to a church is once a month or more. Okay, so that is what it is. Something like 35% of people have a church that is meaningful to them. What's more troubling to me is that it's more like 10% who live out of a biblical worldview. 10% or less. Here's what I mean. When we make a decision, we filter that decision through the Word of God. We say, we're going to make this decision, for instance, on how we vote in two weeks, based on the values and teachings of Jesus, not on the values or teachings of my uh, political party with which I identify. I'm going to go to the stories of Jesus, not to the stories of culture, when I decide how to spend my money. And so... As they, as they determine, like, is, is this person living out of a biblical worldview or not? They would ask questions like, do you believe that the most important thing you can do as a, as a human is work hard and earn a lot of money? And if you say yes, that is where meaning and purpose come from life. It's pretty clear that you're not living out of a biblical worldview because the Bible teaches an alternative, like value and purpose in life come from worshiping God and loving other people, not making money to buy stuff. Here's, a, here's what you might be thinking. Well, I know what's going on. It's all those liberals. They're taking over the country. They say they're Christian, but they live just like the world does. If you thought that, you've actually abandoned the biblical story and filled in the gap with the story of your political party. You know I like to offend everybody, if I can. <laughs> if you thought, you know what the problem is, it's all those white men who call themselves evangelicals. They're the ones who have gone syncretist. They live just like the dominant culture. If you thought that, you've abandoned the biblical story for the story that is being told by your political party. You, you're starting to catch... If you're a white man and you're offended, you weren't listening to what I just said. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to offend the people who categorize people in general terms and say, look, they're the problem. So... You can find out if someone lives out of a biblical worldview or not, sometimes by how they spend their money. Do they give significantly or sacrificially to kingdom efforts? If the answer is no, then they're not making their decisions based on the values that the Bible is teaching us. 
I'm not talking about percentage. I'm not saying even give more to your church. I'm saying live and give the way that God is leading you to. Some of you have voted. Some of you will vote. As a Christian, you, as a follower of Jesus, it's a conundrum. I have a strategy that I don't know if it's perfect or not. I'm not going to share you share my strategy with you this morning. But if you go to the polls next Tuesday, or if you've filled in your little you know, mail-in ballot, and the main thing you vote on is whether or not this candidate will make me more money or make me less money, if you've made it about the economy, or more specifically how that economy is going to affect your savings, you have abandoned, or at least the, uh, the like American dream of like making more money is competing with, let's just say that, it's competing with or has overtaken the way of Jesus and how you make your decisions. I'm not saying that the Bible forces you to vote Republican or Democrat. I'm saying as you vote, make sure that the filter, that the, the thinking goes through the way of Jesus, goes think do what you can to think like Jesus, lest we become just like the dominant culture. I think I'm just going to move on from that. <laughs> you guys, are you, get, are you catching it? Like, that's, the point is that we live and love and spend our money and spend our time in unique ways from the culture like Jesus does. And so what I want to do is, if you're in Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 4, I would invite you just to stand. We're going to do that today just to honor God. These are his words. It's a way we can just say, God, you're here. You're in the house. And we're going to recognize that you have words to say to us. So this is a letter or a short prophecy in Jeremiah's book and what's happened is there's been some prophets who have said to the people, we're going to set up camp outside the city of Babylon. We're going to stay separate. We're going to wait till God smites them. It's going to happen in about two years. And Jeremiah says, no, that is not God's heart. Here's God's heart. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has, he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Verse 5, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them. In other words, there are separatists and there are syncretists among you. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come to you and do all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. And these are words for people who are living in exile here in verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, 
They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And that doesn't mean that everybody who hears these words goes home, because Daniel never does. In those days when you pray, I will listen. That is good news. Verse 13, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. So pray with me. God, we are thankful that your promise is that you will be with us if we seek you. And we ask today that your words would sink into our hearts, that our minds would be transformed by your wisdom, that our hearts would be captivated by your beauty, that they would be softened, and that we would be people who bring the message of your love and of your kingdom. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So I wrestled with whether or not to show this video that I'm about to show. It's a Bible project video, so it's not like edgy or anything like that. I just, I know, uh, I know that it might mean that this service goes a little long, <laughs> but uh, I, this is one of the biggest impact Bible project videos I think that it's seen. And the, the subject is all about exile and how to live in exile and what the way of Jesus looks like. So I hope that this helps uh, connect Jeremiah to Daniel, connect Daniel to Jesus for you, and I'll be back in five. It ends a little, ooh, there, doesn't it? Followers of Jesus are called to live the way between loyalty to God and subversion because we bring a different way uh, to live and to love. And so let's open up to Daniel chapter 2. Um, this is one of the stories, if you grew up going to Sunday school, that you probably remember, that you may have heard. Uh, Daniel chapter 2 is fairly long, so we won't read all of it, but we will start in verse 1. I'll do a little summarizing, and hopefully by the end we'll be able to unpack three different categories of what is going on here. The first is Daniel's hope, his rock solid hope, you might say. You'll see why I say rock solid. The second thing is the Daniel don'ts. The third thing is the Daniel do's. And hopefully my bad grammar will help you remember the Daniel do's and the Daniel don'ts. Um, I imagine that you'll go home and as a family be like, Daniel don't, Daniel do, and that'll, you know, then you'll like love like Jesus because of it. That's the real goal. But anyway, okay, Daniel chapter two. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such a disturbing dream that he couldn't sleep. He called his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I have a dream, I have had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. And uh, the, the king here basically says, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to have to tell me what it is what my dream was, and then you're going to have to tell me what it means. Because you can kind of imagine these Babylonian astrologers and magicians kind of like, uh, oh, who's that character in Harry Potter who does the um, crystal ball reading? Trelawney. 
Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but you know, like kind of, ooh, ah, the crystal ball, I see a dark mark in your future, something bad will happen to you, which is not that impressive because like something bad is going to happen to you, okay? I just read your future. Um, so uh, Dan, uh, the King Nebuchadnezzar is like, I, I've stopped really trusting that what you're telling me is rooted in reality. I think you guys are frauds. And uh, so he says in verse eight, the king replied, I know what you are doing. You're stalling for time because you know I'm serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you are doomed. So you have conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind. But tell me the dream and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. Uh, the astrologers like kind of whine about this. And in verse 11, they say, the king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods, little g, can tell you your dream and they do not live among the people. So they start giving excuses. They get defensive. Um, this makes the king mad. Verse 12, the king was furious when he heard this. He ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends because they're counted among his wise men. Um, so Daniel does something. Daniel do this. Daniel finds his close friends and he begins to pray. He says to the king, get, just give me a night. Hang on a second. I, I need just a little bit of time to go and pray to my God, which is interesting that he basically says something similar as the other magicians, like, hang on a second. I'm, you know, like, we're, but the other magicians were stalling. Daniel is actually saying, king, I'm going to do what you say and I'm going to gather my close friends together and I'm going to pray. Verse 17, then Daniel went home and told his friends. You can circle the word friends there if you have a pen nearby. He urged them to ask oh, uh, his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You guys remember their Babylonian names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Tabedwego, or Abednego, depending on how you want to say it. Um, and, and he tells his friends what had happened. Verse 18, he urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. And he said, praise, this is one of the Daniel dues. He praised the God of heaven. And he said, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies in, hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank you and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. So Daniel goes to the king and says, here is your dream. There is this big statue. The top was made of gold. The middle was made of silver. The legs were made of iron. The feet were made of iron and clay. And then in verse 34, it says, as you watched a rock that was cut from a mountain, not a big rock, mind you, just a little kind of boulder sized rock that was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands was it cut, begins to roll and it hits the statue in the feet and the statue falls and breaks to dust and the wind blows and there's not even a trace left of this 
statue. So if you jump down to verse 44, uh, he begins to describe like you, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the gold, your kingdom represents the gold head, but you're going to be replaced by another kingdom. Daniel doesn't say Persia, but as you, like the traditional reading of this is like Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then the feet are Rome. Uh, Daniel is like, in a sense, predicting the future, but he doesn't have names for the future empires, uh, just qualities of the future empires. And basically he says like, in a sense, there's a decline, like human civilization is not headed in a good way when left to its own means. But he says during the reign, verse 44 of those kings, talking about those Roman kings, uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands. You see how he goes back to that? It's very important that this rock is not cut by human hands. It's also interesting to notice that the statue is like pretty cool looking. Like it's gold, all these things that humans really value, like gold <laughs> and silver. And then iron, maybe we don't think of as a precious metal, but that's a super useful one. I mean, think where the world would be without steel. I mean, that's kind of their, like, that's their, uh, one of their primary resources in terms of manufacturing weapons and armor and like now we use it for building. So it's like kind of an industrious thing. So it maybe isn't as pretty as gold, but it's, it's very useful. And it's just this like rock that was cut out from the mountain, but not by human hands. Verse 45 that crushed the two pieces, the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God, the great God, the great God was showing the King what will happen in the future. The dream is true. And its meaning is certain. So how do we live in exile? Well, the first thing is we need hope like Daniel. Daniel's hope is actually in the substance or in the message of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Isn't that interesting? God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream that actually encourages Daniel. Because the dream is basically giving Daniel kingdom perspective. Now, if we just read down a little bit farther, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 46, threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him, and he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. So you're thinking, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar believes the dream. In fact, he even goes on to say in verse 47, Truly, your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. And he gives Daniel a promotion. Except for if you're a Jewish reader, as you hear King Nebuchadnezzar showering gifts onto Daniel and offering sacrifices to Daniel and burning incense before Daniel, you realize King Nebuchadnezzar is saying God is the great king, but he's reverting back to his worldview, which is I'm going to worship a person, perhaps even an incarnate God type person, because only the gods can reveal mysteries. He hasn't actually made the leap to there is a God in heaven and he is the only one, the creator, the sustainer, the savior of our universe. And then to make matters even more ironic, if you will, flip the page. You know what happens in chapter three? He gets a vision about a statue that's crushed by God's kingdom. And then he goes and builds a gold statue that represents his kingdom. 
And he says to Daniel's friends, if you don't bow down and worship, you will be like thrown into a fiery furnace. So Nebuchadnezzar doesn't become a worshiper of the true God. But Daniel is reminded that there is a kingdom that will outlast the present kingdom. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that too. There is a kingdom, God's kingdom, that will outlast our current kingdom, whether that be the kingdom of Amos or the kingdom of America. God's kingdom will outlast it, will outgrow it, will be a mountain, while our kingdom will be perhaps a house or a nice car. You know, um, somebody reminded me this of this truth, the, the truth, the importance of keeping a kingdom or an eternal perspective. And uh, I just have to say, Tom Brady, I've, I've never been booed uh, from the stage before, but I'm giving you permission right now. <laughs> Tom Brady. Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback to ever play the game. <laughs> <laughs> But he just mortgaged a lifetime of marriage for a few seasons of football. Now, I don't know actually what's going on between him and his, well, wife with whom he's going through divorce proceedings. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be like, I'm not giving a cultural critique other than from the outside, it sure seems like he is doing what most of us cannot see in ourselves and we do. We forget that God's kingdom is eternal and most of what we worry about, most of what we use to make our decisions won't matter in five days or five. Maybe it's five. Maybe it will matter in five days, but what about five years? What about 50 years? Is the thing that's just gnawing you into a downward spiral, is the thing that is most important to you as you make your decision going to matter in 500 years. God's kingdom will. And the people that you invest in, we believe are eternal. The way you love a person and share the greatness of God in your life to that person, maybe call that witness, that can matter 500 years from now. In 5,000 years, I don't think that there's going to be a country called the United States of America because no country has lasted 5,000 years. But God's kingdom, whether it be in kind of our current reality or in the new heavens and a new earth, in 5,000 years, God's kingdom will be greater and like have more impact and the impact of our great country, what will it be? We'll have a lot of landfills full of stuff, full of your stuff, probably, unless we figured out how to turn that stuff into energy, which hopefully that is true. Okay, got sidetracked again. Uh, Daniel do's. <laughs> what, oh, sorry, Daniel don'ts. What don't Daniel do? <laughs> Daniel don't hide, wouldn't you? Don't you? When there's something controversial, don't like there's actually a camp that he probably could have snuck off to. Like there's a bunch of people who are 
anti-Babylonian that he probably could have like snuck off and just hid for like 20 years and hope the whole thing blows over. Um, like we kind of do that too when there's conflict. Like we, we don't go to the person. We like go to people who agree with us and kind of... Or maybe we just post on Facebook. Uh, number two, I really like the word cynicize uh, better than I like the word criticize because I think that's, again, that's a, something that we're all at risk of doing because cynicism is pretty cool right now. Like Daniel could have gone all meme. Uh, you know what a meme is? It's like when there's kind of a funny, snarky tagline on a picture. Uh, and then you, you know, you share it with your friends. I'm not anti-meme. I'm just saying like you would have think Daniel could have gone flight or he could have gone fight. Like he could have, like, this is a chance where Daniel could have been like King Nebuchadnezzar, you worship false gods. You're going to get crushed. You need to repent. You need to change. And Daniel doesn't do those things. He, um, like actually is honoring to the king. He explains the meaning of the dream, just as the king asked. He does it in such a way that Daniel actually gets promoted, not fired, which in Babylon, getting fired means you're fired from life. But uh, anyway, third thing Daniel don't do is Daniel don't fight a culture war. Um, And this would have been the chance you know how you could have like really made some ground in a culture war, like brought the, the values of God into the dominant culture of Babylon? He could have said, you see those astrologers over there and their magic books? Burn those books and burn those guys because they are advancing ideologies that do not agree with mine. Amazingly, Daniel saves these magicians and astrologers. Even though we'll find out later, it's these same magicians and astrologers that try to get his friends killed. Daniel goes to the king, which is gutsy. He honors the king. He serves the kingdom, but he resists fighting the culture war. Daniel do's. Daniel do pray and worship with his friends. Guys, you've got to have people that you're praying with, that are praying for you, that you're sharing life with, that you worship with. And I think that's more than an hour on a Sunday morning or an hour and a half, depending on how long today's goes. Usually an hour and 15, right? Like you got to, ha- I don't know if this is a tripod. I don't know if this is a life group. I don't know. Something sustained so that not just when you were in trouble, you're like, help me. Like Daniel had these kingdom friendships, we'll call them, that he had maintained. He had patterns of prayer and worship that he had maintained since he was a kid. That he continued through his Babylonian like culture training. Like he had homework. He had to read pages and pages and pages of those magic books as part of his education uh, to be one of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. But he still prioritized his friendships with other believers, we'll call them believers in the true God, patterns of prayer and patterns of worship. And so it's perfectly natural for him when he's in a crisis to go back to those friends to pray and to worship. This is just something Daniel do. Number two, 
He's faithful witness to God's power. Like he uses the opportunity with FaceTime with the king to say, the God in heaven, the God that I prayed to, he's the real deal. He is the one who is bringing a kingdom that will endure. He is the great God. And that's something that Jesus asks us to do too. Like he actually does not succeed in converting Nebuchadnezzar. But that's not what God asked him to do. God asked him to be brave and to be a witness. To share what God had revealed to him. To share what God is going to do. To share what God is doing. So, Daniel do faithfully witness to the God's power. Third, Daniel do serve the people and places he has influence. So I think a lot of us waste a lot of energy trying to change the general culture. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe if we complain enough, Disney will start making different kinds of movies. Or if we post enough, like the general culture will start to like shift more toward like Jesus values and Jesus ways. And we waste a lot of energy doing that. And so we don't have energy left to actually work to shift the cultures that we all live in, work in, uh, the, the cultures of our family. This is one of the places where Daniel like is, is true to his specific calling and the specific people and the specific places that he's given oversight. Uh, and actually does have influence. And so, like, you might work in an environment that's toxic or where there's a lot of gossip. This is a place that you can shift the culture by simply being true to the way of Jesus, by simply saying, I'm not willing to have this conversation, or I'm not willing to do that, but, you know, I am going to do the thing that I think is right, even if there's a cost. And I just heard a story of someone yesterday who said they lost their job because they stood up for doing what they thought was right. Like, I'm not going to steal information and use it uh, for our benefit because we said we wouldn't. And now we're doing it and we need to stop. You're fired. You know what's going to not matter in five years, most likely? <laughs> um, you know what's going to matter in 500 years? Like a commitment to Jesus. Losing a job doesn't have to matter in five years. Being faithful to Jesus, that's going to matter in 5,000 years. And so whether it be in your family or whether it be in your church or whether it be in your life group, you have influence over real people face-to-face -to, -face, to love and to support, to encourage. Uh, those are the things that you can do. <laughs> to not uh, in anxiety, give in or even propagate the problem because of the risk that you might take by living Jesus' way. So I just want to wrap up uh, by pointing us to Jesus the person. Because in a lot of ways, Daniel is a shadow or a, a, a way that, um, like, like Daniel points us to the person of Jesus. Like it happens several 
times in the book. But one of the times here, and I kind of mentioned this before, is that the people that Daniel saves end up betraying him. And we find this in Jesus' life. The people that Jesus came to save end up betraying him, end up being the very ones who turn him over to the Roman authorities, who call for him to be crucified. And yet he does so willingly. The threat of death does not change Jesus' commitment to your salvation. The willingness of Jesus to lay down his life is actually the, the cutting out of the rock, not by human hands, that starts small, like a little boulder or like a mustard seed or like a little baby born in vulnerability and who then dies as a young man in his 30s who dies in vulnerability. A little seed, a little baby, a rock that is rolled away to reveal an empty tomb. Jesus and his kingdom is the place we can put our hope. And it's the only way we can gain courage, perspective, and live and love like he did. So let's stand. I want to invite up the worship team. Let's, uh, if you would, just kind of put your hands out. We're going to invite God's spirit to come. Uh, I, I just ask that you pay attention to what's going on in your mind and in your heart. God is wanting to speak to us. God is wanting to interact with us in this time. It's not just words that we're singing. We believe that God is actually speaking. And so come Holy Spirit. Draw near to each one of us. Root us in your hope. Reveal to us the ways of your kingdom. Give us strength and give us courage. Show us how we can serve. Show us how we can live in this tension of loyalty to you and service or love to our neighbors. Come Holy Spirit. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.